Welcome, adventurers. This week, how the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition affected the storytelling of Season 2. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Welcome back, everyone. Season two is over. Uh, never thought I would be here, truly and honestly. Uh, end of last season, season one, we did a little episode uh, that kind of explained how the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition uh, affected the storytelling. And we're just going to revisit that here and go over the stories from season two and look into... Yeah, the rule books, the basically the three base rule books, the player's handbook, the dungeon master's guide, and the monster manual from fifth edition, and some of the effects those had in and on the stories of season two. I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everybody for listening to season two, especially my patrons uh, who are financially helping support the creation of Tales from the Dungeon really means the world to me, uh, every one of you. Uh, I think we gathered another three patrons this season, and welcome to each and every one of you. So incredibly honored. Yeah, so thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, really does mean the world to me. Uh, let's get right into it. This episode takes a little bit longer, usually, than my average storytelling, just because I do tend to ramble. I will try to keep that to a minimum this time, but heading over each episode and the rules. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, the rules of D&D 5e and Tales from the Dungeon, the stories. So our first episode this season were episodes 16 and 70, 16 and 17, excuse me, those who would defend. Uh, as we start out this episode, it appears to be more centrally focused on NPCs and I talked in my first first season rules. It's kind of a DM thing. How many background stories are going on in your world? Is Do you know each story? And a little bit more on that is, are your player characters, are your player characters related, or are they the only, are they dealing with the only events in the world? Or are there overlapping events? Are there multiple big things going on? Is what they're doing, the only thing happening in the area, or are there other world-turning events and they just happen to exist in that world? So in this story, we start with uh, with Elisheva, captain of the watch for the town of Feld's Crossing, and quickly find out that from the end of last season, there is about to be a siege, a hobgoblin siege on the city. So to begin with, yeah, not much in the way of Dungeons & Dragons. I will mention that if you go to Chapter 3 in the Dungeon Master's Guide, I think it starts on page 71, there's a ton of stuff about creating adventures, uh, events, uh, political events, or uh, wars, or whatever. And it lays a lot of stuff out, so I would just generally say, if you're having trouble as a Dungeon Master thinking about what do I want to do, Chapter 3 in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, page 71, has a lot of great info. And if you looked at episode 16, you might go, okay, this is just a little background information on that. Uh, so we see 
yeah, stories told from what would seem to be NPCs' points of view uh, and this siege of Feld's Crossing. It's an important event as that's the southern edge of this Barata province. And yeah, that's that. So to begin with, it feels like we're touching it with some NPCs. Though there is mention of, and this uh, Elisheva, the captain of the guard, did in fact know Yanif, the character from our very, very first tale back in season one. So there's at least a little hint that there might be something going on, or at least some overlap. Uh, the second part of this tale, episode 17, rather than those, we do touch base with those NPCs, those soldiers, but we also find out that we have a party of adventurers moving through the town. Uh, that party includes Mela, which is one of the characters from season one, and a bunch of other people that she has fallen in with that we haven't met yet. But what we see is that that group of characters is moving through Feld's Crossing at this time. And in fact, the world event, the Siege of Feld's Crossing, is a massive inconvenience for them they are on an entirely different mission and trying to get through. So I think this is a great storytelling element for for a dungeon master or campaign. Maybe you're trying to get from A to B, but there are some other goings on that really make things difficult and they act, act as obstacles for the characters to have to overcome. And that's what we wind up with here in this story. Uh, the other thing that uh, I like to think about this story is that so many times in campaigns, we wind up going into towns to gather information. So this is kind of that trope of going into a town and trying to find out what next. Now, we don't know exactly what, but this party is on a very specific mission, uh, and they are now under a time pressure to get out of the city as the walls are closing for a siege as this army comes in and that being said, that's the worst case scenario for them, for them to be trapped inside the city. So we wind up with a party searching throughout the city. They find an older gentleman who eventually gives them some information. This is where I like to think sometimes about characters and their off-the-wall solutions, player characters and their off-the-wall solutions, and how as a dungeon master, you kind of got to do your best to roll with the punches and offer them a way to get out. So... In this case, they find a find an old man in a tavern, and he knows another man who had information on what they were looking for, uh, a temple in the woods to the north of where they are in Feld's Crossing. And But he says, I don't know, he doesn't have all the information they want. They want to be more certain. And so in this conversation, he uh, mentions a friend, old Narn. Player characters move out of the pub and kind of discuss what to do next. Did they get enough from him or did they not? But what do they go to? They go to <laughs> digging up the body of the old man's friend, Narn, in the cemetery and using a spell from the player's handbook, Speak with Dead. So they get some more information, actually, out of a corpse. What are other things they could have done? Uh, yeah, totally up to you and totally up to them, and that's how D&D is. Maybe there was somebody else that actually knew Narn and had heard his stories more specifically than this one man. Maybe there was other players they could have found, but in this case, the player characters go directly to the source. They go to the corpse of old Narn, uh, dig him up, and use the spell from the player's handbook, page 277, speak with the dead. 
Now, we don't know what information they got exactly. We do hear the words Criesta Deana Der again for the f- first or second second time, I believe, at this point. Uh, but anyway, they they are looking for specific information. We don't know exactly what yet, but using the Speak with the Dead spell, they are able to get some of the information. Now, as the story moves on, they get caught and have to, are actually in danger also of now being jailed. Again, here I see as a DM character kind of interaction, Sarkeesian, the leader of this party, has an opportunity to basically just slightly influence the guards, I'm going to say through the uh, through the mechanism of a charisma check. She basically says, if you're going to take us somewhere, please take us to the north gate, which is where they're trying to get which actually allows her to have an interaction with the newly promoted was once Corporal Veshna into Sergeant Veshna, and Sarkeesian and the Sergeant Veshna have an exchange, in which case I see this scenario playing out as the dungeon master where the Sarkeesian character is able to convince Sergeant Veshna that she's telling the truth, that their party is on a very important mission, and that Sergeant Veshna already has enough on her hands with the siege and just let us go about our business. And again, with a series of charisma checks and insight checks, you can get to the situation where Sergeant Veshna lets the party escape and they aren't trapped. So that whole adventure or whole session could have been one session of that, that adventurer party attempting to escape the town. And in this case, they do with, uh, with looking for info and a unique solution of using speak with the dead and and then eventually convincing a guard to let them out to continue on their very important business. So just a few rules in there and a lot more about uh, adventuring and dungeon mastering. So, okay. Uh, episodes 18, 19 and 20 unexpected house guests. I uh, just wanted to point out, this was actually the result of a patron poll. So some of my higher level patrons, uh, I, query them with questions, and they got to choose between good dragon fighting evil party or evil dragon fighting good party, and they chose good dragon fighting evil party. And then I gave them the further choice. I gave them a choice between, I think it was brass dragon, copper dragon, and silver dragon on a different poll, and they picked silver dragon. So if you cruise on over to the monster manual at page uh, 117 and 118, You'll see our good friend, the Silver Dragon there, a good alignment, a morally aligned dragon. And yeah, so that was that. That was the basis was just those two questions. And then I went from there. uh, And then embarrassingly, I've played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. I've never fought a dragon before. Not a once. I've never used a dragon before. Uh, I'm a lot newer to DMing, so using versus fighting. Is not. I played a lot more, and I think I just always wound up in campaigns where we never wound up getting above fifth, sixth level, and that which case we never got to that kind of big boss fight or a dragon fight. So, <laughs> in all these years, never fought a dragon. And I had a conversation with another friend that had been playing forever and ever, and he, I mentioned it, and he started scratching his head, and he went, "Me neither. I've never fought a dragon." So I just thought that was hilarious in a, in a game called Dungeons and Dragons. How many people? maybe haven't actually interacted with or fought a dragon. Uh, because of that, though, I was very nervous about writing a, f- a fight scene, a combat scene between 
between player characters and a dragon not knowing how its abilities would lay out. So in this case, uh, what I did was I drew up, drew, 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 yeah, good speaking. I drew up a map on graph paper and with my son's little Lego bits and pieces, I put together an encounter and we played it out. I actually had my son play with me. He did all the dice rolls for the dragon and said what he thought the dragon should do and how he should attack. And so I ran an entire combat scenario here between the, the characters that the evil party characters that I had uh, made and this dragon. And so rolled initiative and literally wrote down turn by turn who attacked, how much damage they did, what was going on. And um, I guess n not really surprisingly is when I had completed that combat, uh, it made the writing the story just fall, at least the combat elements. It was really easy, right? Because all I had to do was describe, describe what had actually happened. And so when you're listening to that combat in episodes 18, 19, and 20, fully played out, and that's actually what went down, how the dragon fought the mercenary party of uh, Havish and his do-no-good people. Uh, that's that. So, but at the end of that story, I did need the thief to escape with the item, uh, the thief to, yeah, Zerum to escape with the item that they were sent to gather. And how I did that was I used an existing magic item in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, page 174. There's a helm of transportation. I just reskinned that and made it into a bracelet. It's a bracelet, literally the exact same magical item. Uh, and all as it does is that magical item has three charges, allows you to cast the spell from the player's handbook to uh, page 281 to use the teleport spell. So, and when that happened, Zarum was in a situation where he had just got lit up by a dragon and a dragon breath. He did use the uncanny dodge ability of a thief to, to reduce that damage, but was barely alive at the end of that as the I'm rolling the damage for that. But so he, his next turn slaps on this teleportation bracelet and it would have been better for him to go directly to his, his person that hired him, who was Esmeray the wizard. But I'm the way I'm imagining is in a panic. He just imagined the town. And so instead of going exactly where he wanted to go, he winds up in the town square. Anyway, yeah, so that's what I have with that one. So the rules in 18, 19, and 20, like I said, actually used the dragon, rolled up the characters. Uh, patrons actually can see the evil party and their stats, uh, and I fought that out. So the rules actually made this entire episode, basically played out an entire combat. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, episodes 21, 22, 23, The Rabbit and the Fox, is really just an origin story. It's the creation of Snare, who is also in our episodes 1 and 2. He's a gnomish thief, but this is how did he become who he is. So, again, not much going on here other than my opinion that backstories for characters make for more interesting role-playing campaigns. Totally my opinion. I know there's a lot of people out there that just like to roll dice. That's great, too. This game has everything for anybody. But to me, The Rabbit and the Fox is an origin story of Snare the Thief. It explains how he learned his skills as a thief, his meeting with a dwarf that is also a captive. And I think the other thing I just want to point out, what's so cool about having a backstory is that it allows, if you're a dungeon master, 
and allows for future complications in a campaign that's going to last a long time, right? Maybe you're running out of elements or ideas, and if characters have interesting backstories, you can fully pull in some some conflict or some need for that character to resolve things from their past. So in this case, we wind up where the Baron of the Mummer's Fair could definitely play a future role in Snare the Thief's life. Like, you could have him, uh, the Baron, find Snare and attempt to assassinate him. Or the other way around, you could find out that Snare finally gets to a point where he can no longer deal with the fact that uh, the Baron is alive and he goes after him. So, anyway, not much in the way of rules. There is obviously, like I said, the origin story of a thief there is lockpicking used in that uh, in that episode. There are stealth checks. There is sneak attack damage, and all such things happen. So, very thiefy, roguey type things going on in that episode. Uh, episodes twenty four and twenty five is titled Atrocity. Now, I do want to point out that Atrocity, if you are a natural twenty member which I have one, Carolyn Carney, so very, very thankful for your support on that very high level. One of the options or one of the abilities at that level is you have the option to pick, uh, pick a topic for one of the stories I tell. And so she did. She, she tasked me with the topic, not all monsters are monsters. And I asked for a little clarification on that just because I wanted to try to do her honor. And so... Basically, her follow-up was sometimes the good guys are the bad guys and vice versa, and that sometimes the everyday Jane and Joe assumes that their causes are just, and when when everything is unraveled and when everything is revealed, it's not what happened. So in this, I'm trying to imagine a story where people, assuming that they were doing good, wind up doing harm. And so I basically wasn't sure what I was going to do with this at all, and I literally opened up the monster manual, started flipping through, flipping through, and I hit monster manual, page 45. There's a huge picture of a terrifying, muscular, giant cyclops in that corner. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's terrifying. But if you start to read about cyclops, they aren't evil by default. They are actually more just kind of large, clumsy, clumsy, sorry, humanoids that live in the wild and try to take care of themselves and of and avoid humans for the most part, as described by the rules. But my my mind easily quickly went to that picture, and I would how easy it would it be to villainize something of that alien size and nature. And so that was the beginning of me forming uh, a story in my mind. And so we have a story about soldiers that are tasked with taking out a cyclops who has apparently destroyed an entire village, the village of Glintcap. Uh, again, in this story, I played out an entire battle scenario between the soldiers, which I used veterans for, for most of the soldiers, I think six or seven. There's a scout in the story. I use the scout. These are also in the uh, monster manual towards the back. So I use the veterans class. I use the scout class. And I think I use some guards for some kind of in-between lower level soldiers. So that combat was played out. And this one I actually didn't, I needed to 
run the combat to see who lived and who died. And it worked out that quite a few soldiers were killed. I wanted the, the price of this, of this fight to be high. And it was out of 10 soldiers. I think four of them, three died outright. And one was, is badly injured, uh, to the point where is unconscious and stabilized. They're trying to get that soldier back into some place before she dies, but it worked out. So like I said, out of 10 soldiers, three killed outright and one, uh, badly, badly hurt. But I actually condensed that, that combat quite a bit. And the reason was, is there was the story, the telling of the story to how did, how did those soldiers come to be? What did they think they were doing? Killing that Cyclops that had, was a threat to the village. And then as they leave that combat, they find out that was in a hurry to get back to heal one of the soldiers. They find out the village that was supposed to be destroyed not destroyed at all and the world kind of collapses around that group of soldiers that thought they were out doing what they were supposed to do and it turns out they were being manipulated for uh for gain and if you listen to the story it definitely appears they were being manipulated again by the wizard Esmeré so give it a listen but the rules were, again, a, another full-blown combat I ran. That one I ran just by myself. My boy was not involved in that one. But rolled all the dice, did all the damage. Uh, soldiers died. The Cyclops dies eventually. Uh, that was that. That was episode uh, 24 and 25, Atrocity. And the rules from D&D there. The last story I have to tell is a thread to pull. Uh, episodes 26 and 27. And we return to Mela and her adventuring party. In this, we move. Her first story was kind of her origin story as a warlock. This is her I meet my party, how I met your mother, how I met my party story. And it, in a flashback fashion, describes after Mela uh, meets the dwarf Colborn, how Colborn then invites her into his adventuring party, which becomes her adventuring party. And we are seeing that party for the first time. Um, so if you think about that, basically you have a situation where the first story I told, the creation story is probably a zero, zero session kind of story, the backstory for the character. This might be a session one, the the party comes and meets together. So if you're the player character, Mela, or all the other player, player characters, you as the DM could have run this whole scenario where Dwarf meets Mela, Mela, uh, Dwarf brings Mela into that party of adventurers in the inn. So, uh, back in the origin story, Mela, after fighting off a huge amount of ruffians, winds up almost in trouble, and then how she meets the Dwarf, Colborn, he puts the last assailant that has, for a moment, gotten the better of Mela to sleep, and that's that. So how we initiate this whole flashback is that we're in a scenario where Mela is being bore down upon this by this massive, strong woman is coming to attack her and then collapses asleep. And so Colborn again has used the sleep spell uh, player's handbook, page 276. So it's a favorite of Colborn to just put the enemy to sleep. Uh, in that, if you're paying attention, there's a little Easter egg in this story. If you listen to the description of 
that large woman and who was bearing down on Mela in this most recent series. In that, there's a little Easter egg. So if you listen to the description of the woman who's bearing down on Mela at the beginning of this episode, and then you go back to uh, episode 16 and 17, the very beginning of this, there is a description of all the party members. So if you are a fan of the TV show Firefly, there's kind of a Jane situation going on here. So if you know the character Jane and you know Firefly, uh, listen to the description of the woman bearing down on Mela at the beginning of this. And then finally, who's in the story? So probably some more stories to be told there as well. A um, little bit more on this one. Definitely kind of a campaign building episode. We find out more about this party, find out that their adventure has been one where they were on some very random adventures, started small fries with some horse thieving rings, and has progressed into a larger and larger crime ring. So it's just that's just one idea for a campaign or a way to lead you into maybe much larger problems as characters grow. So there's a timeline laid out in this story about they started with this and then found this and then found this. And it's just a great way to DM, kind of peel back the layers, always kind of give more clues, and then maybe let them drop off for a while, as also is said in this story. But it's a way to weave a greater plot through maybe a group of smaller adventures here. But in that case, we are moving with this party, how they are finding out that there is somebody much more dangerous in charge of this whole group of criminals that they're looking for. So the end of this is an interrogation which features strongly the halfling cleric. And what kind of cleric is she? She is a trickster domain cleric. Uh, it's in the player's handbook. I didn't write that page down. But if you look at the classes, uh, the trickster domain, Rianok the halfling. And so this whole process starts with them binding the person to the chair. Well, at this case, you have a hostile witness. One of the spells I see over and over again used by clerics and uh, by paladins, especially too, is this zone of truth. But if you read the spell zone of truth, it basically says, yeah, they're going to tell the truth, but if they wouldn't normally answer the question, they can just not answer the question. So makes zone of truth kind of tricky. So I used, in my mind, as a player solution, a two-part solution, Rianox starts by casting Charm Person, which is in the player's handbook, page 221. And if she starts with that, it says if it's successful, which the story assumes, then that person treats you as an old acquaintance. So as we have the character bound to the chair, Welton, Rianox basically cast charm person and then starts talking to him in a very friendly manner that being said he eventually realizes he's tied to a chair which rianok also has an explanation for but since these two spells uh charm person and zone of truth are not both concentration spells rianok uses them in cohesion so first she convinces with the spell charm person uh, their captor Welton, captive Welton, that he is a friend. She then goes on and subtly casts Zone of Truth, and unbeknownst to him, he's now friendly and especially truthful. So we got Charm Person, page 221, and then Zone of Truth, Player's Handbook, page 289, and that 
leads to this ability for them to actually get more information out of this character. So what do they wind up with? They wind up with, yeah, there is more. There's more clues. There is somebody higher. And then what's the different kind of clue they wind up with? They wind up with this clue of a tattoo. So this is where the tattoo is drawn and then it is presented for both Sarkeesian and Colborn, who's a wizard, to inspect and see what they can find from it. And this is where I just wanted to touch real briefly on difficulty checks, DCs. Uh, there's checks for all the different stats, intelligence, wisdom, whatever you want. And a lot of people, I think, use checks as 100% fail, pass-fail, but that kind of does a disservice, especially when you're finding out information. I really like to use levels of success, right? So if you roll above a 5 on your DC check, you may you may get some info, but it may be very minor. It may, the clue may be you recognize the symbol, but you can't remember where. What would that allow you to do as a character? Go somewhere and do research. But let's move up to the next DC at 10. Not only do you recognize the character, you remember reading about it. And I may even give you more. You remember reading about it in a book about the following people. Let's move up one more step to DC check 15. Now I'm telling you, not only do you remember, recognize the symbol, you're pretty sure that it was from this specific region. In this case, uh, Colborn realizes that it's from the uh, glass desert region and that he thinks it's from an old tribe in that area. And he knows a little bit of information about that tribe. Now, what would be a 20? You might even go more. He might have, Colborn might have known exactly what tribe it was from, have been dead sure that it was the following and whatnot. And then as you get to higher levels, you could even have 25 and 30. So you could have this situation where even if you don't make a great check as a DM, you can still hand out some information and then just more information, the better that check is. But it beats the just pass fail theory of a, of a difficulty check. So I uh, just wanted to put that in there. So that was the rules and how they affected the Tales of Season 2. Uh, if you have any questions about this episode, next week I will be doing questions and answers for Season 2, so if you get me a quick, quick question, I may have time to get it on. If not, uh, I will definitely always answer questions from my Patreon page, or if you contact me on Twitter, at Joel Rigetti, I will get back to you regarding any questions you have about this episode or even just tales from the dungeon in general. So that's that. Uh, hope you enjoyed and we'll see you next week for questions and answers.